Disruptive Storytelling with Military Changemakers is a bi-weekly podcast presented by Partners in Promise. Partners in Promise is a nonprofit dedicated to protecting the rights of military children in special education. Large organizations like the military have learned to love the status quo. But at Partners in Promise, we believe in being disruptive as we have learned that having easy conversations rarely leads to real change in special education or in the military. We are storytellers who aren't afraid to get a little disruptive. Disruptive Storytelling is sponsored by the Modern Military Association of America. Founded in 1993, MMAA is the nation's largest nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing fairness and equality for the LGBTQ military and veteran community. Learn more about what the changemakers at MMAA are up to at modernmilitary.org. Welcome back to the podcast. On today's episode of Disruptive Storytelling with Military Changemakers, we are thrilled to be joined by U.S. Army Major General Greg Martin. You may have recently read some of the articles that outline General Martin's story. General Martin is a 36-year Army combat veteran, retired two-star general, and a bipolar survivor. Martin is also a qualified airborne ranger, engineer, and strategist. He has earned degrees from both West Point for his bachelor's, two master's, and a PhD from MIT. Martin is also married with three kids, living with his wife in Cocoa Beach, Florida, where he speaks, writes, and advocates for mental wellness. General Martin is also writing a book about his experiences that he's going to share with us today. The book is entitled Battling Bipolar. For more information about General Martin's work, stay tuned to After the Show, and we'll connect you with more resources. Let's listen to his story. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Disruptive Storytelling with Military Changemakers. I'm very excited today to have a special guest, U.S. Army Major General Greg Martin, who is retired. He is going to share with us a little bit about his story with stigma and mental health. Thank you for being here. Welcome. My pleasure. We really love to start off by telling stories, of course, and one part of that story is just kind of getting your connection to the military. Clearly, you you have intimate knowledge with the military, but we usually hear from our family perspective. I'd love to hear a little bit about your connection as an active, a former active duty service member. What did your uh, military journey, how did it start? Well, it started, my dad was a World War II veteran of the Navy, and my mother had two brothers who were career Coast Guard. So the military was always something that was in my mind that I wanted to do. And when I went to college at University of Maine, I was a walk-on to Army ROTC. And then I liked it and I decided to apply for West Point. And then I got in. So I went to West Point and that was a, a great experience. I mean, I, I would say I really enjoyed most of it, but there were some parts I didn't. And then went into the Army on active duty as a platoon leader, company commander, and you know, on up, the, up through the ranks. As a kid growing up, I always had unusually high levels of energy, enthusiasm, drive, creativity. 
And I only recently found out that that's a condition called hyperthymia, not hypomania, which is episodic mild mania, but hyperthymia. It's a constant base of a mild level of mania. So it was really a great advantage to me because my baseline personality had this extra high level of, of those really desirable qualities. And they made me really successful in high school, very successful at West Point. And then as an officer in the army, it really gave me an overabundance of the qualities that are most valued as a, as a military officer. So I love the army. I fell in love with the soldiers. First couple tours were in Germany during the Cold War. And then, you know, when you do well in the army, as well as the other branches, they not only promote you, but they give you great assignments. They offer you graduate school, war college, all these wonderful assignments where you grow intellectually and in terms of your leadership and your higher level management. So I ended up getting promoted up the ranks, was a battalion commander, brigade commander. And when I went to Iraq as a brigade commander of a combat engineer brigade, thousands of soldiers, I didn't realize it at the time, but the stress of combat ignited or triggered my genetic predisposition for bipolar disorder. So it's in my genes, but it was dormant. And then when I got in combat, it triggered my bipolar. And that was in 2003. And so for most of that year in Iraq during the war, I was in a state of mania. But luckily, it was a high-performing state of mania. And I, I did well. I did really, really well. Tremendous, again, energy drive, et cetera. But I was in kind of a state of euphoria. I was so happy because I had an overabundance of dopamine, endorphins, these other biochemicals that, that make you feel that way. So everything went well in Iraq. And then we went back to Germany. And once I was out of the combat zone and those chemicals weren't being produced in the same level, I spiraled into depression. And I told during our medical redeployment screening, I told the medical people, I said, hey, I'm really depressed. I've never felt like this in my life. I feel terrible. I don't want to get out of bed. And they said, well, are you suicidal? And I said, no. They said, do you want to hurt anybody? I said, no. And they said, okay, you're fine. Just you know, go back to work. So I really struggled for the next 10 months where I was in a pretty serious state of depression. But thankfully, the Army structure where, I mean, you have to get up, you have to go to PT, you have to be at the meetings and the briefings and you know all that stuff. It just kept me going one step at a time, one day at a time. And then months later, the depression just went away naturally. Well, that was 2004. For the next 10 years, I went through cycles of mania followed by depression. And my mania got higher and higher. My depression got lower and lower until in 2014, I went into a full-blown state of acute mania. And I became, my leadership was undermined. I became very disruptive. People lost faith in me because I was just, I was a maniac to use the official term. My boss, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and I was president of National Defense University, he got so many complaints all anonymously that he did a series of assessments on my leadership and what was going on. And he, he, uh, he came to the conclusion that he needed to you know, let me go as president. So he called me in and said, Greg, and I had known him for almost 20 years and he was a great guy, wonderful boss, mentor. He said, Greg, gave me a big hug. He said, I love you like a brother. You've done an amazing job. That's incredible what you've achieved in two years, but your time at National Defense University is done. 
you have until five o'clock today to either resign or I'll fire you. And I was like, whoa, that's quite a, that's not something. And on top of that, I'm giving you an order to go get a mental health exam. I need you to go to Walter Reed and get a psych exam. And so amazingly, I was so high and so euphoric and so manic. It didn't even affect me. I didn't feel bad. I didn't feel disappointed. I wasn't angry. I felt like this is God's will for me. And God's going to give me a new mission that's even bigger. It's better. And so it's everything's good. And so I thanked him, gave him a big hug and, you know, went on my way. That was when I was in peak mania. And over the next several months, I spiraled and crashed into severe, hopeless, crippling depression, interwoven with severe, terrifying psychosis, delusions. And for two years then, then I ended up retiring from the army at my scheduled date. And then for two years, I was really in a fight for my life. I retired, moved to New Hampshire where we had a home, and I was in terrible shape. I had what psychiatrists call passive suicidal ideations, which means they weren't active where I was thinking about doing it to myself. They were things that were just happening to me in my my mind. But they're very, very dangerous because if you have a passive ideation, it can easily morph into an active ideation, which then can become an active, can carry out a suicide. Um, And the ideations were of me seeing my own violent, bloody death in these different, you know, being killed scenarios. And finally, a good friend helped get me into the VA. And I went to the VA up in, actually was in Vermont. And I went in and the psychiatrist asked a question that no one else had asked me. He said, are you suicidal? I said, no. He said, are you thinking about hurting yourself? No. He said, do you have any morbid thoughts of death or dying? And I said, whoa, yeah, all the time, every day. They're horrible. And he said, okay, that's, he said, describe them. So I did. He said, that's a passive suicidal ideation. We need to put you, you need to stay with us in the inpatient psych facility for a while. So I stayed for uh, weeks in the psych ward and that began That's kind of, I sort of hit rock bottom. And then that began my climb out of the pit back to health. And then finally, and they tried all kinds of therapies, medications, you know, they tried everything. And then finally, the game changer was when I was prescribed lithium, which is a natural salt. It's actually mined out of the earth. It's a natural element. And that began, that was five years ago. And that began my path to real recovery it still took a while for me to get my, you know, my feet back under me and get solid again. But over the last five years, I've worked really hard with the VA doctors. My wife has played a huge role. And then, you know, very healthy living, taking my medication, you know, figuring out how to avoid or counter stress, anger, anxiety, agitation, and live a very healthy life, exercise, diet, plenty of water, plenty of sleep, all those things that are pretty standard. And, you know, bipolar, I never wanted it, but it wanted me, and it's never going to leave. It's always a part of me, and it's my job to be vigilant and keep it at bay. Because if you if you let your guard down, it can come roaring back and take you down again. So that's that's kind of my story in that I sort of combine the military and the bipolar together. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's how life is, right? We know that life doesn't put itself into different boxes. And so I thank you so much for for sharing your story. I think that there is a link between your experiences and why we're here today to talk about stigma 
as it relates to the military, because throughout your experience, it sounds like you had a variety of moments where either you were supported, well-supported folks asking you the right questions. And then there are moments where it sounded like that wasn't necessarily the case. I guess my question would be how throughout this journey, what did you know? You know, at what point did you know that there was a problem and, and did anything either help you come forward with this problem or prevent you from coming forward with this problem? You know, how can we better understand what that looked like for you? The first time that I thought, boy, I don't feel right was when I got home from Iraq, back to Germany, and, you know, the endorphins and the dopamine and the adrenaline sort of dissipated. And I went into this depression and it was not a crippling depression, but I had never, ever in my life felt so bad. And I told the medical people, I said, hey, I, you know, I think I'm depressed. I think I have depression. And they told me, no, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. And I told you that the army structure kept me going. The other thing is I was basically self-medicating myself. I would do really intense physical training workouts to get things going in my brain, the endorphins. I you know, really would get into religion and Bible verses and prayer and try to help you know, God help me please, lift me out of the doldrums. I would listen to super motivational music, whether it was rock music or classical music, just music that would lift my spirits. And then at night I started drinking more and more alcohol and I was in Germany. So the German beer was really good, <laughs> but I, I started drinking more than I ever had before. And that's a kind of a form of self-medication, which is actually very counterproductive because the alcohol might make you feel good, but it's actually worsening your condition. And, you know, that went on for months. And, you know, I told another doctor months later during the depression, I, I, I went in for a regular annual physical said, hey, you know, I, th I feel terrible. I've never felt like this. And it's been going for months. And they said, oh, no, you're fine. You know, they took my blood. So I thought something was wrong, but they kept telling me nothing was wrong. And so I figured, well, there's nothing wrong. This is just a normal cycle going into combat, coming out of combat. I just need to suck it up and, you know, have a happy attitude, you know, drive on. So I did. And then I remember over the next, so my bipolar condition was unknown, unrecognized, undiagnosed for 11 years. And then over the next number of years, I can remember feeling, you know, I told you my whole life growing up, I always had high energy, high enthusiasm, all that. But I remember feeling like, wow, I'm really high. I mean, I have like ultra energy. I kind of feel like Superman, which of course is a sign of mania. Um, I mean, and I was talking faster and faster and doing more and more things in my job. I was had my ideas started coming faster and more furious. I started getting more and more religious and extreme in my religious beliefs and practices. I, I started sleeping less and less. I needed fewer and fewer hours of sleep until by, by the time I ended up getting removed from command, I was maybe getting three hours of sketchy light sleep and I didn't need any sleep. And so somewhere along the line, I started recognizing that, wow, this is really weird. I mean, I am really high, but I still had no idea it was mania. And nobody said anything like, wow, are you okay? I started doing kind of stupid, risky things, you know, as a general you know, I went to a military ball when I was the Fort Leonard Wood commander. And, 
you know, the troops were doing keg stands. I don't know if you know what those are. Oh, no. You... I have to pretend like, no, no, no clue what those are. <laughs> you know, keg stands are not a terrible thing for college kids or a bunch of privates or young NCOs to do. But when a two-star general who's the base commander starts doing keg stands, that's like, that's really kind of out there. That's a bit weird. And then later in another assignment uh, where I was commandant of the Army War College, we had a big reception for the new students. And afterwards, there's a really nice like tiki bar with a bar and stuff like that. So we're drinking beer and just having a nice time. W one of the students says, he was a ranger, he was an army ranger and said, hey, General Martin, hey, what you, let's, let's, go, let's go over the fence and into the pool. The big community pool was right there. Of course, it was locked because it was that night and the fence was about 10 feet high. I mean, this was not a little trivial fence. And he said, you are the senior ranger. You have to lead us into the pool. So next thing you know, I'm climbing up over a 10-foot fence with about 15 guys behind me, new students. And I'm supposed to be setting the example on behavior and all that. And we're just like, we're over the fence, into the pool, jumping around. Luckily, the MPs didn't come, but they would have arrested us for, for doing that. And those are just two things that happened. But I started, my behavior started getting more and more bizarre and risky. When I was stationed in DC in 2012 to 2014, I was getting less and less sleep. I mean, I'm sending dozens and dozens of emails and text messages to all kinds of people in the middle of the night. I'm going on midnight bike rides around the streets of Washington, DC. I would feel like I was Superman flying over the monuments and over the, you know, the reflective pools. But I never, I was so manic that I never thought there was anything wrong with it. It just felt like good. It felt like I was, you know, on high on some kind of drugs. And I was doing a great job. I kept my ratings were higher and higher. I mean, I went from being a colonel when I first came down with bipolar in Iraq. I got promoted to brigadier general, to major general over the next years. And my job, I kept getting, you know, harder, tougher jobs that were more challenging, more prestigious. And so I thought, man, I'm doing great. And, you know, the four stars I worked for were saying, hey, you know, you're amazing. You're a transformational leader. We're going to put you in an even harder job. So I never really saw anything. And when, you know, my, my, the chairman, General Dempsey, when he removed me from NDU and told me to get a psych eval, I got three psychiatric evaluations in that month. And all three of them said, there is nothing wrong with you. You are fit for duty. You are healthy. There's nothing wrong. So I said, see, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm fine. But I, but I wasn't. I was really severe mental illness. How do you align that? You know, you know, in, in messaging, a lot of times, you know, we read that the message is to go forward and seek help, get the help, mental help you need. That's the, the message that the DOD and military leaders are putting out there. And so you did that, sounds like. Where was that disconnect, do you think, between you saying, I know that there's a problem, and them not giving you that acknowledgement or recognition that you did? You know, you know yourself better than anyone, right? I mean, in theory, where do you think that disconnect happened? Because we, we want to be able to tell folks, you need this help. It's life-saving getting this help. But if they're not, if it's almost dismissed, how do you align that now with, with the hindsight of what you've experienced? A couple factors. You know, my boss, the chairman, you know, four-star General Dempsey, he did exactly the right thing. He needed to take me out of NDU because I was, my leadership was just not, it was ineffective. And so 
for the university I needed to go. And then for me, he wanted to protect me from the slings and arrows and the barbs and you know all the things that were coming my way from people that were unhappy with me. And he wanted to protect my family and he was concerned about my mental health. So he did the right thing. Then when I went to Walter Reed, when you walk in as a two-star general and you had no prior history of mental health disorders, they look at you and they don't expect, they're not looking for mental health or bipolar because most bipolar hits between 18 and 25. And so there is a thing called late onset bipolar, which I got hit with, but they, the last thing they expected was that I had bipolar disorder. The second piece is when you're in a state of mania, there are times when you're way over the top and it's easy to detect that I am manic. And so a lot of my employees saw that, but that doesn't mean you're like that hundred percent of the time. You may be over the top 30, 50, 60% of the time, but then you have periods where you're calm, you're coherent, you're smart, your brain's functioning well. And so I had these conversations with these psychiatrists where I was like in a calm state and we had these very advanced, smart conversations. They were asking me about the job, et cetera. And I came off as a very smart, intelligent, capable guy, and they're seeing my record of success. And so they didn't see anything wrong when they evaluated with me. But the disconnect, I think, was I think those doctors should have reached to the chairman's office, my boss, and said, okay, why did you command refer him for a psych eval? Show me what you're seeing. Paint a picture for us so we can see what you see as to why your command referred him for a psych eval. And then I think that the people, my chain of command, when they knew I was going to see the psychiatrist, they should have gotten a hold of the psychiatrist and said, hey, we're not trying to taint or bias your evaluation, but we want you to know that we're not doing this trivially, that here's what we're seeing. We're really concerned for this guy. We care about General Martin and we want to see him get taken care of because we don't want to see him fall apart. And I don't think that happened. I don't think either party reached out to the other one to share information and get a complete picture. The only external person for one of the evaluations, my wife came with me and she, they asked her, well, what do you think? And she said, well, I think he is displaying signs of mania. And they took it into consideration. It didn't affect their diagnosis, but they did write it down. So when they all told me I'm okay, I believed them. I said, oh, I'm fine. I'm healthy, but I really wasn't. And once I crashed into depression four months later, crippling depression where I couldn't function, I went back in on an emergency basis to see the same doctors. And they saw how terribly depressed I was. They said, aha, you have depression. And we remember what your wife said. Then they sort of put two and two together and they diagnosed me fairly rapidly with bipolar type one which is mostly mania with some depression, as opposed to type two, which is mostly depression with a little bit of mania. Once I was under the full weight of the horror of depression, because I had never, ever felt that bad where I couldn't get out of bed, I couldn't function. I mean, it was a chore to get me to Walter Reed to see the doctor. I knew there was something really, really wrong then. And then when they diagnosed me with bipolar, it made total sense to me because I had been mostly manic for over a decade with some depression. 
But that's when I said, okay, I believe you. I accept it. I have bipolar type one. What do we do to get better? Well, that's, that's exactly, you know, in your articles that you've written, you talk about that, the solutions that are out there and how you, you personally have sought help to, to receive the care you need, but also how to address the larger picture of getting help, reducing stigma. You call it in one of the articles, a three-headed monster. Can you talk about that three-headed monster and, and some of these solutions that you found success with? Yeah. Thanks. I wrote that article, The Three-Headed Monster, as a kind of a keynote article for Suicide Prevention Month. And suicide is, it's pretty complicated. It's not as simple and straightforward as people think, but there's typically some different factors that come together. One is some form of mental health disorder or mental illness. I know they're trying to change the term from mental illness, which I'm fine with, to mental health disorder, which is a little bit you know, it doesn't, it's a little less offensive. It takes the edge off it a little bit. So, I mean, I mean, I think that's fine, but, but that's one of the heads. Then when people have a mental health disorder, because of the stigma and the embarrassment and the shame, which makes no sense, that's the biggest deterrent for going in and getting help. So the main reason people don't get help for their problem is that they feel bad about it. And it's this whole idea of stigma and that I'm going to mark myself as a failure and an embarrassment. So they have a disorder, the stigma blocks them for getting help. Then they're in very, very dangerous territory. Then, then typically all you need for suicide is some sort of external social type event that hits them. And that's what will send them over the edge into suicide. The typical events are death of a loved one, failure of a relationship, be it marriage or boyfriend, girlfriend, some sort of financial, severe financial difficulty, loss of a job, some kind of real bad legal problem when you're in trouble with the law. So mental health disorder combined with stigma, you're not getting the help, you get hit with this external factor, now you are very vulnerable to suicide. So that's kind of the three-headed monster, the disorder, the stigma, and the suicide. And so, you know, we, we're here to talk about stigma as one way. In our second episode of this series, we spoke with a professor who studies stigma and the effects that they can have, especially when coupled with mental health. And so when it comes to stigma in the military, what do you think that you would have liked to see done differently or a way that we can move forward with better supporting maybe a friend who's beside us who might be going through something? What can we do as either individuals and, and corporately as you know the military community to help individuals who are going through things like what you've experienced? Yeah, I, uh, that's a great question. I think the military's come a long way. I think in the last 20 years, we are more interested in and sensitive and responsive to mental health issues and concerns and problems, but we still have a long way to go. We've got to change it so that when someone has a mental health disorder, it, is, it shouldn't be seen any differently than you know, a woman fighting breast cancer, a man fighting coronary heart disease, somebody with diabetes, you know, nobody, there's no stigma attached to those. In fact, 
you know, a woman fighting breast cancer is seen as a heroic figure. I mean, everybody wears the pink ribbons. I mean, the NFL, the football players, they wear pink ribbons. It's wonderful. I think it's great. But the same attitude should apply to mental health. Now, then you go in and you say, okay, in the military, there's certain levels and types of mental health disorders that people can continue to serve, or they maybe are reclassified to a different job that doesn't have as much dependence on secret clearances and weapons. And so there are some levels of mental health disorder that people can keep serving in the military. But there are other levels, like, you know, with my level of bipolar disorder, I was allowed to retire at my normal time, which was coming soon anyway. But if I hadn't been coming up on normal retirement, I really was not in a state of mental health to continue to serve as a general. I mean, I, I just wasn't. I mean, and I admit that I'm not and it's I'm not ashamed of it. It's, it's what happened to my brain. But when somebody is separated for mental health problems, we should say, hey, look, you know, you're a great American. Thank you for your service. We love what you did. But you, we have certain health standards and you don't fall in the standards anymore. But don't feel bad about it because, you know, the guy to your left has a torn up knee and they can't run and they can't hike and they can't carry a rucksack. And they can't, we're separating them medically too. And another guy has got, broke his back or her back on a parachute jump and their back is so messed up, they can't physically be in the military. And so they're being medically separated as well. So, you know, one has a bad knee, one has a bad back, you know, with you, you know, it was the internal workings of your brain circuitry, but don't feel bad about it. Don't just get the help you need. We're going to, we're going to help you. And I, I think that that attitude needs to prevail and it needs to come in from the bottom up and from the top down. I think a lot of the senior officers, I mean, the feedback I've gotten from these articles that I've written in the last six months has been just overwhelmingly positive and encouraging and asking me to speak and, hey, can you write and you talk to this person or do that? So I think we're really heading in the right direction. I, I would say virtually every senior officer in the US military, at least that I know, and I, would, I have a hard time in imagining people who are generals or admirals not having this attitude. They see it, they understand it, they don't see a stigma, they wanna do the right thing. I'm not sure it's quite as strong at the levels below that, but I think what we need is to you know, increase and improve mental health awareness. I think everybody, every soldier and sailor, airman from the bottom up needs to be trained on what are the basic symptoms of the major mental illnesses. You know, not to become a psychiatrist or a, you know, a therapist, but just like people could have seen my behavior. And if they'd have had just rudimentary understanding of bipolar, they would have said in you know minutes, they would have said, mania, I see mania in this guy. And then some they, people should feel free using a battle buddy system or a peer-to-peer -peer coaching system where somebody would have felt comfortable to talk to me and said, hey, Greg, or hey, General, I'm really seeing what I think is mania, and here's why look, let's get you in for your own good to see a mental health professional. Just talk to them and see what the deal is. That wouldn't go in my official medical records, that wouldn't be a black mark. And if everybody from the bottom all the way to the top would have 
you know, a battle buddy or a confidant that could give them honest feedback, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the recipient would not get mad or angry or hold it against them. I think that would be a huge, huge improvement. And then you have to have the availability of mental health professionals available on the different bases or on the ships or whatever to, to talk to people and look at them. Absolutely. Those are wonderful ideas and suggestions. And I, I love the, the top down, bottom up mentality. When it comes to stigma, we have to talk about the situations that prevent us from getting the care and the help that we need. Our organization, the Partners in Promise, is focused on helping our military families in the Exceptional Family Member Program access the care and services that the program provides. But we know stigma prevents folks from enrolling. And so we similarly would encourage anyone who needs help, whether it's them or for a family member, to get that help. The leadership is supportive. You know, our organization has spoken with many branches directly at the highest levels. And we have been so encouraged by their support. So we just really need to get that, make those connections with individuals. Like you said, the battle buddies. I believe you had shared previously to this conversation, a a link to a TED talk where his message really emphasized how connections can save lives. And we know that we've taken those mandatory trainings where you, you hear that, but it sounds like in your experience that that was a huge, you know, having that General Dempsey re- recognize this issue for you and, and come forward as supportive leader was, was part of that solution for you, at, at least a first step. And I want to give it back to you before we sign off for today. Is there anything else that you would like to share about your story or any words of encouragement for anyone who might be going through something similar? Yeah, I was really fortunate. We, you know, General Dempsey did the right thing for me and my family and my health. Then after I left NDU, uh, General Tom Bostick was, again, just a really compassionate, caring leader who helped take care of me during some pretty tough times. I was really lucky. My wife and family stuck with me. I mean, I'm really blessed there. And then I had a real good friend who was an army mentor and a friend for years. And he never gave up on me. He kept fighting to stay in my life when I was in the depths of depression. And he helped me get into the VA with a really good psychiatrist. So those are just a few things. I mean, people really make the difference, the connections that my friend David Bartley talked about in his TED Talk. And But what an amazing TED Talk. And I'm working with him on collaborative writing and other things. My big word of encouragement is mental health disorders are fundamentally a physiological phenomenon that is going on with the biochemistry and the electrical connections in the brain circuitry. So it's just as physically real as a broken leg or diabetes or a heart attack. And so go get the medical help because if you get the medical help, there's a very, very high level that you will be able to live a healthy, happy, successful life. But if you let this stigma, which is illogical, makes no sense, it's unfair, it's really inhuman, if you let that stigma block you from getting the medical, the professional medical help, then there's a good chance you're, you're, you're not going to get better and your life is going to be one of misery and you know stigma and potential suicide. So the choice is ours to make. And I would just say, you know, accept the mental health disorder. Like I just said, 
yes, I have bipolar disorder. How do I get better? And, and you know, I think that's the key to success. Well, thank you, sir, for joining us today. Thank you for listening uh, to Disruptive Storytelling with Military Changemakers. If you want to share your disruptive story, email us at info at partnersandpromise.org or connect with us online. Thank you. If you are experiencing feelings of shame as a result of stigma, know that you are not alone. There are resources available to you. This could look like contacting your military inspector general in case of systemic issues or seeking free counseling services via Military OneSource online or by calling them at 800-342-9647. Want to share your disruptive story? Contact us at info at partnersandpromise.org or visit us on our website at thepromiseact.org.